Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Adam Hawkins. In each episode, I present a small batch of the theory and practices behind building a high-velocity software organization. Topics include DevOps, Lean, software architecture, continuous delivery, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to Small Batches. Today is the inaugural episode for the voicemail listener request line. We had a listener call in and request an episode on value streams. So let's give that a listen. Hey, this is Steve. I work for Visible Value Stream Consulting, and uh, I love all the episodes that you've done so far. I'd love to see one specifically on value streams, uh, value stream thinking, mapping, or management. Uh, that would all be great. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Steve, for calling in with that request. If you'd like your topic covered on the show, then you can call in at plus one eight three three nine three three one nine one two and leave your request in a voicemail. Preference for episodes goes to listener requests, so call in and you just might get it. So thank you, Steve, for the suggestion on value streams. I realize that we have not yet discussed value streams yet on the podcast, but they are so fundamental to all the different topics and the work that we do as it relates to software delivery. So I reached out to Mick Kirsten from the Flow Framework and works at TaskTop if he could connect me to somebody to talk to on the topic. And he recommended that I speak with his friend, Carmen Diardo. I'm really happy to welcome Carmen to the show. We had a great conversation on sort of all the different just facets of value streams, what they are, why they're important, you know, value stream mapping, architecture as it relates to the flow framework, software delivery, all the kind of basic stuff that you just need to know. It's just the fundamentals. So let me read off uh, Carmen's official bio here. Part technical guru and part storyteller, Carmen is an award-winning public speaker and published author. His latest works include a number of IT Revolution Forum papers and the 2019 book Standing on Shoulders, A Leader's Guide to Digital Transformation. Drawing upon his vast and varied experience, including three patents in software engineering, Carmen is a senior VSM strategist at TaskTop, helping software organizations to accelerate the flow of business value through the implementation of integrated delivery pipelines and pioneering the flow framework. Now, I just want to repeat one thing that really stuck with me from this conversation. And if you listen to the Saltside Chronicles, you probably know what I'm talking about, which is how Carmen framed the flow framework and the four types of work into two different categories, revenue protection and revenue generation. That has really stuck with me because it just cuts to the core of what those different types of work are for and how to represent those in your value stream and really how to think about the work that you do on a daily basis. It also makes it easy to see if the dial is going too far to one end of the spectrum for far too long, you know, working on revenue generation without considering revenue protection. You know, what's the point of generating revenue if you can't maintain it? Anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation with Carmen. So now I give you my conversation with Carmen Diardo. Carmen, 
Welcome to Small Batches. How are you today? Great, Adam. It's great to be here, and uh, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So today, we will be talking about value streams. I had a listener request an episode on the topic, and I realized that uh, I hadn't really talked about value streams or value stream architecture or any of these sort of lower level topics that come up in every single, and all the literature on like DevOps or full framework and all this stuff. So I figured that uh, could bring you on the show and kind of get a introductory to immediate to expert level discussion of value streams and why we care about them. How are they useful? So my first question to you is, how do you define a value stream? It's sort of a vague topic. So to get started, how do we define value streams and what are they? Yeah, that's a great question and one one we kind of get a lot. And so I always start off by saying that a value stream starts and ends with a customer. You know, it's really the set, the end-to-end set of activities performed to deliver value to that customer through a product or service. And I think sometimes people get hung up a little because they think of value streams and products as, well, you know, if I'm in a company, these are things that we're selling and people are buying. But really, everybody, I'll say everybody, in the company really has a team with a customer and a value stream. So I think one of the things, you know, as we talk through this is that concept of, you know, everybody actually is working in some way on activities to deliver value to something, to somebody, right? And, and yet I don't think a lot of times that's the way people are conditioned to think about how they're doing their work. Do you see it more as like a smaller box? Like they think of themselves in a smaller box, whereas with the value stream, trying to convey the point that you're part of this much larger process. Yeah, I think it's 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 interesting because you know I've had conversations with customers or, or you know different areas of a customer, and we talk about well, you know, who are your customers and what value do you provide them? Mm. And sometimes it's a little bit of crickets, and you know, I generally will try to say, well, you know, who would care if you weren't around? I mean, I might not say it exactly like that, but but trying to bring out. Obviously, there is value to what you're doing, and obviously there are customers, you know, but get them into that mindset because, again, if they're an internal team, which most value streams are internal, they just don't have that way of thinking about it, and then they don't think then that flow applies to them when really it does. And in many ways, it's more important because if you don't have flow on those internal teams, that's what's enabling a lot of your external teams. So, and I don't want to get down a rabbit hole right now, but it's important that, you know, to, to get those concepts across to a lot of um, areas of the organization that aren't really thinking that way. Right. So in my mind, the way that I think about this, and I'm not sure how you approach this, but, you know, I just think of a pipeline. So on one end, you have all of the inputs this could be like whatever the work that you do could be, you know, bug fixes, could be supporting internal team members, it could be customer support, it could be anything. And then right. on the right hand of this pipeline is all kinds of business results. This might be lower costs, this might be deploying a feature, fixing a bug, servicing a customer support, like sending an email, it could be any number of things. 
But I think that's kind of where the the challenge is for some people and that it's vague in the sense of the inputs and the output, like the inputs could be anything, but I think the outputs can, or more quantifiable in the sense of, is it easier to define like the business value on the output as opposed to the, the input side? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good point is, is that, you know, you're, you're getting inputs from your customer and then providing them with a product or service and getting feedback so that you can go through that continuous feedback loop. And I think a lot of times, actually, people struggle with what I call the left-hand side of the value stream. Mm -hmm. And especially when you think about IT and you think about Agile and you think about DevOps, there's been a lot of emphasis on what I call code to cloud. But it's really that upfront part of the value stream where we estimate sometimes companies can spend half their time and half their money that is the least defined mm. and the most nebulous and where, you know, if, if things aren't visible, you can't manage them. We kind of have a saying that, you know, either you manage your value stream or your value stream manages you. And that's where I think there's a lot of focus. It's probably most of the people that I work with, you know, their bottleneck, the thing that's stopping their flow is not really generally the middle of the value stream. We've kind of spent a lot of time optimizing that. It's actually the ends, and it's more likely to be the right-hand side than it is the left-hand. I mean, the left-hand side than it is the right-hand side. Well, it sounds like what you're describing to me is the kind of the fuzzy front-end problem. You'll talk about, I say, I just did a, an episode on service-level objectives, and we were talking about like, the hardest part about the SLOs is actually defining the measurement because that's where it starts. Like that's the input to the the value stream the SLO defines, right? right. So, like, how do you measure all of that? What is that? And you know, who are you actually measuring it for? Like, once you have the left side of the value stream, the middle and the end become clear. But like as you said, if you can't define it or visualize that, then how are you going to make any progress? Like even in the worst case, you spend your time and energy trying to optimize the middle when you don't even know what the left-hand side is, right? Exactly. So a lot of times what we do start is with that work intake process. And we get them to think not just about one type of work, but all types of work. And so it's not just, you know, the what I'll call features or enhancements to whatever you're doing, which is typically what people and customers think about the most, right? I'm I'm paying you, I'm investing in something, I'm expecting some goodies back from that. And that's fine. I mean, that's what's selling, generating new business, you know, whether it's, again, it's an internal or an external product. I could be an operations team where I'm providing new platform of the service capabilities. That's what my, my customers in this point are developers consuming that so they can produce some great product to sell. They want those goodies. That's what they're looking for. But then there's the other types of work, you know, that you also have to pay attention to, right? There's there's defects, right? And where do they come from? Where do they start? Sometimes when we talk about defects, there's like three types of defects, right? There's production incidents or things that you're getting back from the field. There's Things that you're, and I'm talking more about software, you know, the soft, probably your more traditional product delivery now. But then you have your like defects that you find in the release process. Mm -hmm. And then there's defects 
or bugs or whatever nomenclature people were using that you find in an iteration where or scrum where they may not even say that's a defect but those are three different types of rework if you will and they have very different characteristics and they may have very different intakes right the the incident may come from a service management system of an incident or problem the release defect may be in a quality management system like ALM or or such where the re, where you're doing quality release testing and any bugs you find during your agile process maybe in your agile management so so there's three different work intakes there and that most people don't really think through mm-hmm. so that becomes an interesting conversation because they all have their different characteristics they all have their different flows and they all have different probably have different bottlenecks they eventually may get back to I got to fix something, which means I got to go back through my development process. But before you get there, they may have very different characteristics and how they're identified and analyzed and triaged before that's determined. Mm. I feel like when you, you mentioned these different intakes into this value stream, we're kind of dancing around the edge of another conversation, which is value stream mapping, right? So if you're thinking about you know, I mentioned the model of a value stream as a pipeline, you know, inputs on the left, outputs on the right. That's a simplistic model in that there's only one thing coming into the pipe, but in reality, the pipes are connected to many other pipes and they stuff flows in many different directions. And, you know, part of the the challenge, like you said, is identifying all these different inputs and where they come from. And really, is this just a segue into value stream mapping, like all these exercises of trying to visualize it and identify all of all the different steps and inputs in this process such that a participant in the value stream can see where they are, what their inputs are, what their outputs are, like where they may interact, who they may interact with, who might depend on them and all of these things, right? Right. So I had the opportunity at uh, when I was working at Nationwide and and my, um, I worked a lot with Tom Pater and Mike Orzen, who wrote a book on Lean IT Field Guide, and we did a lot of value stream mapping. And sometimes there's a kind of this yin and yang between value stream management and value stream mapping. Mm. And I believe they both have a role to play. You know, value stream mapping lets you get deeper into what are those steps of activities and, and interactions, and most importantly, handoffs. Because I think as Mick Mick, Mick Kirsten points out in his book, it's really a network, right? I mean, he, he described to me once after a plane ride, you know, he was looking at the, the routes in the, that you can see, you know, if you really don't have anything to do, sorry, Mick, you grab, <laughs> you grab it out and it shows all the hubs and everything. And it, I, I think it kind of hit him. That's really the way work flows through value streams, right? It can go to here, to another team, you have dependencies, it's not just this linear view. I mean, I used to think at, with my telecommunications background, I would think about it more like how we would switch calls, right? And, mm. you know, they were, it was not just point A to point B. There were hops and different things that you might have to go through. So it's really a network. But when you look at value stream mapping, you're really focused on, you know, a set of activities. And, and sometimes I would joke that it sounded more like, like wishes and dreams than reality. Like, is this really how things work or is this how we hope they work or wish they worked? And that's not a knock on it. It's just was hard to always say, 
you know, is this the one path? Is this the happy path? Are there other paths? You know, how long are things taking? Well, you know, a lot of discussion was hard sometimes to understand that. And then once you did it, was it sustainable? Or was it like a one-time activity? You learned something, you could improve, but it was hard to sustain because it was such a human labor-intensive activity. The thing, I think, when I first started talking to Mick was, I said, well, I remember a conversation where I said, Mick, you could realize our value stream for us. And that was because all the artifacts that represented the work, the stories, the epics, the bugs, the security bugs, all those things were actually in the tools that were moving across our value stream. And if we could actually see those and measure those, not only could we see where things were getting hung up, but as we made changes, we would have kind of a digital footprint, if you will, of that work, because we're taking it from the tools themselves and we're able to sh- generate flow metrics. Flow metrics are able to be generating from those. And that's kind of where Forster ended up with this view of value stream management. They talk about you know, people process technology that maps, visualizes flow through software delivery pipelines. So mm-hmm. what excited me was that you could actually start to get a view of this flow through this network now based on the tooling that was being used of where things were flowing. But most importantly, as Tom would, Tom Petter would say, Carmen, what, why are we doing this? Well, it's because we want to see where things aren't flowing, where they're slowing down or stopping. So now once you kind of isolate an area where you think things are, you know, you have a bottleneck, I think you can take a deeper dive with value stream mapping, right? The states in your tools are, may not be sufficient to show you Exactly. It's kind of like, you know, you're looking at a traffic jam from above and you can see cars are slowing down here or there, but you might have to get on the ground and do a little more investigation, talk to the people involved to actually say, you know, what, what's going on here? What happens at what time of day that causes all these things to occur? So, so I think value stream management allows actually value stream mapping in some ways to be done more effectively because it gives you kind of the map of where to take a deeper dive. And then once you make changes, you can then, again, get those measurements right away and say, okay, did this was this better? Was this worse? What happened here? What adjustments do I need to make? Okay, that makes sense. I want to dive a little bit deeper into sort of the beginner's approach to value stream mapping. So let's say that you come to an organization and they're just entering this pool of, you know, value streams and value stream management and, you know, trying to think in this way. And they're working on the left and the right of this thing. And they say, okay, let's try to map this out. What does that process look like? And what are the desired outcomes from that process? So when we start to work with a team, we have this concept of either a value stream architecture diagram or or a value stream canvas, which is kind of a lighter value stream map, if you will. And we'll say, you know, in our, in the flow framework that Mick created, we talk about four types of work, Mm -hmm. features, defects, risks, and debt. And so we'll generally start with something like a feature and we'll just say, okay, first of all, you know, we look at, we'll say, where, what's your work intake process? Where do features first show themselves? 
right? And we'll talk about, you know, what tool do they show? Is it, what is the artifact or these epics or these stories? Where do they come in? And then we'll essentially just say, okay, then what? Mm. Well, they may have a portfolio. You know, what's your portfolio planning process? Is it all Microsoft? Is it all Excel? Is it spreadsheets? Are you actually using a tool, you know, a plan view or a Jira line or something? You know, then what happens? Well, we do discovery. We break it down. We'll have a feature. It'll, then we'll have stories. Okay, where do those stories go? Well, you know, they'll they'll go into Jira and, and then we'll have planning meetings. We, maybe we're doing safe. Maybe we're doing two-week iterations. You know, you ask a question, well, do you have away stories, right? Are all the stories done by your team or... Do you have dependencies? Oh, yeah, we have these things that go to other teams. Well, then what happens? Mm. Oh, I don't know. We don't know what happens. <laughs> Those are the things that we're always waiting on. Okay, so you write that down, right? Because it's the handoffs, right? right? I talk a lot about it's not that people are waiting. It's work that waits, mm. right? And in, you know, in a manufacturing plant, you can go to the fourth floor and you can look down and you can see inventory building up. Or like I said, you can see traffic jams. Where is the inventory in our software processes? It's hard to see that. It's hard to see where work is waiting. Even if you go to Gemba, people will be busy. So how do you know where work is waiting? So we essentially will walk through this process of, you know, what what happens next? You know, well, it will pull it into an iteration or using a pool model, you know, all the way through their CICD to the point where, it's only done, right? But then there's always this question between done and done, done, right? Done <laughs> yes. and released. And change approval processes and whatever might come on the right-hand side. So essentially, what we create out of that is a diagram of you know, those artifacts and how they flow from, in our world, we, we think of four phases, ideate, create, release, and operate. Mm-hmm. And we'll do that for every each one of the four types of work mm. and essentially create you know a diagram a visual that will show the input all the artifacts that are involved the tools that they go through the states eventually we'll get into the states mm. of those things and talk about which of these are active states and which of these are waiting states so i have a state you know waiting for dev or waiting for a code review. Now, many times, if all you have is improv, you know, backlog in progress done, that doesn't give you too much, right? Right. So, you know, a lot of times we, we have to talk through how you can get more visibility because without that, you know, it's hard to shed some light on this. But, you know, again, we'll do that for features and defects first. Mm-hmm. Risks and debt are different kinds of conversations because many times it's like, well, what's your work intake for risk? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, something risk, happened to you in production. Now you know about it, or are you proactively finding these things? Right. Like, how does it happen? Right. So people say, well, we do security scans, we do stack scans, we do dynamic scans. That's all great. What happens? Well, we run a report. Okay. A security manager looks at it. Okay. They schedule a meeting with the team, okay? They beg the team to try to do something. I mean, I mean, there's a, usually a lot of opportunity when you talk about security into, you know, getting it into the backlog with a sufficient priority to actually get it worked on. Because 
especially in a project model, project managers aren't incentivized to take on more work like this. In Mm -hmm. a product model, at least now you can start talking about, you have to keep your product healthy. It's like a healthy diet. You have to have, you know, yes, features are are important. You obviously have defects, which you hope you're managing with higher quality so they're not consuming a lot of your capacity. But then you have to pay attention to risk or you will pay the price. You know, it, risk is what I call revenue protection. Features are revenue generation or value generation. Risks are value protection. Defects are value protection. So it doesn't do you any good to get customers if you're going to lose them because you can't keep them happy. Wow. I actually, I really like that, the framing of it. These are like, they're all count, like it's kind of a countermeasure to something happening, right? You have the generation and the protection because, you know, I've been in organizations where they have not done any work on the risks and then something happens where, you know, there's, for want of a better term, some fire or some catastrophe or some new requirement that comes in that because none of these risks have been dealt with that, uh-oh, what are you going to do? We can't do anything about this. And then what happens? Like on the worst right. on the worst uh, case, maybe you can't do any work on features for an extremely long amount of time because you have all of this technical debt to pay back because you've never done anything to protect your ability to continually bring in revenue. And that's uh, kind of a segue into one of the reasons why I really enjoy the, fl- the flow framework is because it's got the flow metrics and the business results. And if you can frame the conversations in terms of those business results, then I think you can talk to any of the stakeholders in the value stream, be it engineers, product managers, you know, executives, whatever, because hopefully they're all focused on the same thing, regardless of how each individual person contributes to that. So thank you so much for sharing that perspective. But I want to bring it back to the beginning when you mentioned uh, going through the exercise of value stream mapping. And one thing I'm curious on is when you go through these exercises, do you try to start this conversation with, say, you know, the a kind of a group of people across all the different departments or teams in the organization because you know that eventually it's going to span expand out to like other people who may not be part of that or like if you try to start there or if you say that okay maybe only the engineering team is part of this then you know that it's going to expand out into marketing and all these other areas i guess the question is for an organization or a team that wants to go through this exercise who are the best people to involve in that initially? Yeah, that's a great question. So we try to, you know, try to start out with making, it's kind of like an MVP. We try to make a minimal investment and see how far we can go with that. So, you know, sometimes it could be, we try to start with just a handful of people. You know, it could be a product and you know, there's different roles in different organizations. It could be a product manager, a product lead, a scrum master, a dev lead, you know, a, a tech lead, mm-hmm. a set of people who basically understand as much as possible this end-to-end flow of work. And then we will bring in other people as needed, you know, to fill in the gaps, you know, if if as needed, right? So we'll start out, you know with only a handful of people and we'll go through an iterative process. And of course, you know, 
we now have a product where we can actually implement this is, you know, our, the test on this product. So we're actually doing modeling and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll say, okay, well, where did, where do these things reside? We'll bring in those artifacts and we'll model them. And it's interesting because, you know, even within an organization, you'll find a lot, you may find a lot of variability into how they think about their value stream and the set of steps that they go through, which is fine because we can accommodate that. We kind of sit above the fray, but it's just interesting hearing some of these conversations. Some organizations, no matter who you talk to, you're going to hear almost the same story. Some organizations, every team is going to have a little different flavor, which is fine, but you have to, so you have to go through that with the team that you're actually working with, you know, to build out kind of that model of all those types of work and then see, you know, how you can then start to measure it and, and get them in the cadence of consuming these metrics and using it to drive improvements in their flow. Mm -hmm. So let's step back a little bit. So let's talk about what we've covered so far. So we've talked about value streams, the idea. We've talked about value stream mapping and value stream management. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so we have the goal. We define the value stream. We do this mapping, try to visualize it, understand you know, how it all fits together, who participates in it, who does what, when, all, all this type of stuff. That, to me, is actually the really hard problem of it all because you know if you can't visualize it. If you can't see it, you know, you can't model it. If you can't model it, you can't measure it. If you can't measure it, you can't improve it. You can't assess it. You really can't do anything with it. So this is not a unique problem to value streams. You know, it's like all of the type of work that we do, it's always like, just figure out some way how to visualize it and measure it. And then you can start doing something. But that seems to be like where the, like the hard problem of it is, especially given that if we look at things like the flow framework and DevOps, you know, the book, the flow framework sub, subtitle, it's project to product, but trying to get all the members of the wider value stream, however, however big it is, understanding that they are in fact part of this wider value stream and that we're trying to get this continuous flow through it such that we can focus on the end results. And now we've sort of laddered up to the top to where we can talk about the flow framework and the flow metrics. We've mentioned the four types of work. We've mentioned all of these things so far. It's uh, almost impossible to have a conversation about value streams at this point without mentioning those because they're so important. So maybe you can just give a, you know, a short summary of like, what the flow metrics are and why the flow framework is important to this effort. Sure, Adam. So, so you know, the flow framework is really based on really this concept of VSM, which has really evolved and been defined as its own practice over the last few years of, of utilizing, again, the information in the pipeline itself, in those tools that represent the flow of work, the stories, epics, defects, change, incidents, problems, all the things that may be relevant to those four types of work. And so once you've modeled that, and again, it is an iterative process, and we can talk more about dependencies and things, you know, as we maybe as we move forward. Once you've modeled that, right, you, you can start to look at what are the flow metrics. So the flow metrics in the, in the flow framework are, you know, flow load, which essentially is work in process. 
or mm-hmm. progress, however you want to define your P. And you know, I, you know, one of the people that I have the pleasure of work with is Dominica de Granda. She actually helped, you know, that that generation protection was actually, I think I stole that from her, so I should give her credit for that. But um, you know, she talks a lot about too much whip and work in progress. So flow load is very important because it represents here's all the work you have in process. And we can talk more, but that is usually a surprise to people once we actually show it to them. Flow velocity is how many things of each type you are completing within a time unit. So you could say in the last month, we completed 20 features, 10 defects, two risk items, one debt. Um, So it's a measure of throughput or productivity. Flow time is how long it took from and I think you said it very adroitly, when you want to start the clock to when you want to stop the clock, which we kind of leave up to the customer and we will coach to the pitfalls, right? But the difference between lead time and flow time is you may have a request for something. A customer may have a request they put on a queue. You may get hundreds of these that you're never going to service. Flow Mm -hmm. time starts when you actually say, okay, we're going to look at this item and we're going to start to do work and invest in getting it completed. And then it measures how long, you know, again, from that point in time to it's actually been delivered to the customer and can be realized, its value can be realized. Flow efficiency, you know, one of the things that in the modeling is when you're looking at these artifacts, like a story, and it's going through various states, it has active states and it has wait states. Because again, Mm -hmm. it's the work that's either active or waiting. And flow efficiency is a measure of that. So, so if something is 50%, if you have a flow efficiency of 50% for features, that means roughly half the time it's active and half the time it's waiting. Now, we know because the robustness of the schema is the most of this tool will inflate that number. If you look at lean manufacturing and you compare that to like the concept of utilization, you'll find many times a utilization of under 10% or under 5% in terms of inventory moving through a plant or whatever. We know it's going to be inflated somewhat, but it's still a measure of of work versus weight that that shines some light on things. And then finally, flow distribution is kind of a separate metric in the sense that it's looking at the work that's completed and it's showing you what percentage of work has been completed. So in a way, it's shining a light on how much of each type of work that you're investing in, prioritizing, and completing. And that's where you can kind of look at, okay, is this a healthy profile, right? Mm-hmm. If, is there too much defects or there's not enough features, there's not enough investment in debt? And, and there's really not a right or wrong because at a different point in a life cycle, you may decide to invest in different things. You, know, you may do a feature push and build up some debt and some defects, and then you have to spend some time, you know, in the next release working that off. So, but, you know, if you're looking at a trend over time and you're seeing things like, you know, your feature capacity is dwindling, your defects are going up, there's no investment in debt, your flow velocity is going down, your flow time is going up. Those are all a pattern of a death spiral or a, a debt spiral that, you know, can can be catastrophic if you could, if you don't get your you know hands around to manage that. Oh yeah, for sure. All right, let's take a quick break from today's episode so I can tell you about my other software delivery resources. 
First, I'm opening up my own software delivery dojo. My dojo is a four-week program designed to level up your skills building, deploying, and operating production systems. Each week, participants will go through theoretical and practical exercises led by me designed to hone the skills needed for continuous delivery. I'm offering this dojo at an amazingly affordable price to Small Badges listeners. Spots are limited, though, so apply now at softwaredeliverydojo.com. Well, if you want something free instead, I've got you there too. Find links to my free email courses and ebooks on any show notes page. My courses and ebooks cover topics in much more depth than I can cover on the podcast. They're great on their own or even as a useful complement to topics covered on the show. Find all of my free resources at smallbatches.fm. All right, let's get back into the episode. I mentioned this explicitly in the episode I did on the flow framework is the four types of work, given that they're mutually exhaustive, exclusive, that this covers everything, that it gives you a nice sort of overview of exactly how you're allotting your resources. And part of the problem in this, you know, avoiding the death spiral is being aware of the long-term effects of what you're choosing to work on. And given the four types of work, they make it easier, easier to at least see it if you can measure it. And then, as you say, there is no correct answer, but they're all, you know, it's a tension and a trade-off between revenue generation, revenue protection, like depending on where you are in the particular, you know, the timeline of your organization and what are your short-term, mid-term, long-term goals, you know. And like I look at the graphic of the flow framework and at the top, you know, you have the flow metrics on, on the left and the business results on the right, you know, and then the inputs are the four different types of work. To me, this sort of fits the model of the simple pipe, right? Inputs on the left, outputs on the right. But if you actually look inside of that pipe, you know, there's all that could be going every single which way you look deeper. It's like networks and all of this that, and that comes back to the importance of doing the value stream mapping. When you talked about uh, flow efficiency, if you're talking about handoffs and wait states and that, you know, the more different teams you're going to hand things off to, the more potential wait states you have, you're not waiting on people, but the work is waiting is what we're trying to focus on as the flow items themselves. So you can take it from the top down to the flow framework and look down into your value stream network, right? Not the value stream itself, but the network and see where everything is actually happening. But you, know, you have to first have that like, understanding of the whole picture before you can actually get started with it. And I think that's just where really the hard part of this whole thing is, is you know, getting people aware of their place in the value stream network and then that they are connected to these other people or other other value streams and the types of things that they they provide. So how, in your experience, do you help teams or individuals make the connection to the wider value stream they operate in? Yeah, that's a great question, Adam. So, so as I said, you know, a lot of times this is an iterative process. We talk about you know, stages like, you know, you start out learning to see, right? You just want to be able to see what's going on and, and then you want to learn to improve based on that. And so, so we may start out, so, you know, a typical thing might be you start out with a product value stream and it's, it's two teams and they're, they're, do, they're delivering some value direct to an external, to their end, external customers and they're doing their agile things and it all looks good and they have, they think everything's great. So, you know, 
you kind of do the modeling, you start to look at the flow metrics, and then you'll say, well, you know, what's causing you not to be able to go faster, right? So in your, you know, the whole concept here is to use this information in your retros, but very specifically ask questions around speed. What is keeping you from going faster? Because if you ask sometimes, how can you go faster? People kind of think one way about that. But when you say something the other way, which says, what's in your way of going faster? What barriers you experience? You tend to get kind of a, a flow of flow. You get a lot of information, right? Well, it's because, you know, our change approval board, we can't get in there until every other week. And so work sits, it's done, but we can't get out because we can't do this. Or, you know, and this is where the dependencies can come up. So, so for example, working with this team, they have two, two pizza teams. It all looks like a beautiful thing. And then you say, well, well, yeah, we have work that we're waiting for. You know, you see a state that's kind of long, but it's not really clearly defined. It's like ready for test. Okay. Mm -hmm. Things are staying in this ready for test a long time. And there's a big pile up. We've seen 40, 50, 60 things, right? Features, defects, whatever sitting here. You know, yeah, yeah, that has to, there's, there's this back end team and things have to go through there. And, and, you know, that's where, you know, we have to wait. Okay, well, maybe we should bring them in. You think it would be helpful to bring them in? Yeah, that would be great. So, so again, as long as one of the advantages of, of value stream management is if you know where the work is, you can you can start to bring bring their work into the whatever value stream view you're looking at. Sometimes with a minimal contact with them once you've been working with an organization. Well, okay, where's their work? Well, their work is in this JIRA and it's in here. Okay. It's in this container. Okay. We look at it. And, and now we're starting to see not just this team's work, but everybody's work. And what it looks like a little bottleneck with this team is actually a huge bottleneck because there's all these things that it's getting caught up with. And so a typical example that I had is, is showing this to various levels of leadership and you could see their eyes get big and the one leader said, yeah, that team, that back-end team, we've been ignoring for years, <laughs> right? Because they're not the sexy thing. They're not what we're investing in. You know, that's not something, you know, having multiple test environments or multiple ways, they've, that team's gotten too big. They almost needed like an what I call an HOV lane. So <laughs> higher priority work could go faster, like a faster current they said they have a three-week release certification process. Well, does all this work have to go through it? Could some work be short-circuited? Can some work go faster? Then their eyes get big and they say, yeah, we have to invest there. It doesn't matter how much money I throw at these two mobile teams. That's not going to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. and, and then sometimes when you're looking at it, you also see that they've built up now months and months of work on the intake side, based on their velocity, it might take them three, four, five months to work through that. So they have a bunch of people, I call it like making pizza boxes. They're <laughs> making all these boxes, but the problem, you already have enough work there. The problem is over here, you don't have enough people to deliver the pizzas. And the last thing you need, need really is you know, more developers. 
right? So the idea is, well, you know, I'll just hire more developers. That's the worst thing you could do right now because you'll just create more backlog for this bottleneck on your right-hand side, your downstream side, that's your problem right now. So, you know, it's an iterative process and you, you know, you kind of show them and then you kind of go with it. Okay, where, let's have a conversation about this. Where, why is this state so long? What other teams are involved? Maybe it's a performance testing. Oh, well, we have a performance team we have to go to. They have an SLA of 30 days. Oh, well, can we make that self-service? Maybe not. Maybe not all the work, but 80, 90% of the time, you can make that self-service. You can get rid of that SLA, right? And now, it's not that you don't need a performance SMEs, you do, but they're more focused on the process and making performance as a service, if you will, or maybe getting involved with deep dives with performance issues, but they don't have to be in the execution path of every delivery that you do. So you just start to chip away and you kind of just follow the data and follow the flow, if you will, to see <laughs> what is the next, because you're always going to have a bottleneck. It's it's the question again, are you managing the bottleneck? Are you designing the bottleneck or is it managing you? And it, again, it comes all back to what you said, Adam, is you, it has to start with visibility because if you can't see it, you can't manage it. Yeah. And, you know, Carmen, this sounds a lot like Mixed presentation at the DevOps Enterprise Summit in Las Vegas. I think was it a CIO or CTO who took this took tech debt for a hat, something like that. And like you know, if you if you're looking at one thing and you think it's another, you can and probably are making the wrong decision. And one of the aha moments for me when I was reading the the book Project to Product, and I was coming at this from, hey, I'm an engineer, I'm working in the engineering department, I'm building all this stuff. But for me, it was like it was an aha moment where the principles that I had learned from like the DevOps handbook and thinking about just the value stream inside engineering, it was aha, I can take all of this, I can zoom out, put that whole structure on top of the whole organization, use the same sort of mental framework I have for thinking about my own little value stream and apply that globally across the whole organization. And then from, you know, that top down, like, as you said, looking at where the traffic jams are, you could say, ah, actually, here's the bottleneck. It doesn't matter if I go faster, if I'm still waiting on this other thing over here. And, you know, your question you mentioned is asking how we can go faster versus what's stopping us from going faster. You know, this is a, always a problem in communication, right? You could ask these sort of leading questions, but it gets back to the theory of constraints and that right. if you're not addressing the bottleneck, then you're not actually doing anything. So actually framing those type of questions is what are our bottlenecks, what's inhibiting us or stopping us from moving faster are the better questions to ask because then you can, if you have something like the flow framework or your value stream mapped out, you can actually have some data for that to say, ah, yes, it's waiting here or this blocked up here as opposed to just making a, you know, an unscientific hypothesis that, hey, if we change this over here, like what we do, maybe we'll go faster, you know? it actually gets you focused on doing the right things as opposed to just guessing about things. It really makes the whole process much more scientific, which I think should definitely uh, excite some, you know, engineering minded people like myself, because it takes a sort of nebulous concept, but actually really can make it concrete. Now, have you seen something like that before? Well, absolutely. I I mean, you know, working at Bell Labs, you know, you kind of have, I mean, 
you know, Walter Schuhart started with Bell Labs, I think it's now 95 years ago, uh, when Bell Labs started, and worked with Deming on the whole concept of, you know, the plan, do, check, act, continuous mm. improvement cycle. And, and you know, and you, you can talk about the Toyota and the A3s, right? And it's getting people into that level of thinking where what is the data? What is your analysis? What is your data, right? And then planning, I mean, whether you call them experiments, continuous improvement initiatives, and, and Mick calls debt, and a lot of people think of technical debt, but really it's people process technology, mm-hmm. right? It could be anything that's it's an investment in making you go faster. It could be any of the DevOps practices. It could be refactoring technical debt. It could be whatever it, it is. But then, you know, you want to run an experiment. An experiment needs three things. You need to have a goal. You need to have an activity, but then you most importantly, you need to way to measure if it was successful or not. And mm-hmm. sometimes people will do things and then argue if it worked. Well, don't even I coach teams, don't even start if you don't have a metric. Now, obviously, the flow metrics, many times it could be the flow metric, but you know, there are times you may run an experiment where you know you're you're measuring it in a different way to see if it improves. In any case, it's going through that plan, do, check, act, loop, using data to drive you. Again, in the check stage, you use the data and say, did it work? And then it's also doing, you know, which you alluded to, which is the systems thinking. Again, going back to Deming. So if a team, you know, the problem maybe I just described, maybe that's affecting other teams. Maybe it's systemic. So now I can say, well, I can amplify the results of this, right? If we we run this experiment, we don't have to change the whole organization. That can be a scary thing, right? If I go and say, well, we're going to do automated change approvals based on quality criteria that, you know, the ITIL folks and the change management folks, maybe, uh, I don't think so, Carmen. But if you say, look, we're going to run one experiment with one team, we put up guardrails, it's very controlled, the business is on board, and we'll treat it as an experiment. Oh, it worked, or this part of it worked, or we can fine tune it. Now, is this a pattern we can take to the rest of the organization? Yes. And that's where then you're starting to apply the data driven continuous improvement, the systems thinking, and these stories then can drive the culture change you need to really make the difference in delivering business value more quickly. Yeah. Wow. I mean, listening to you and for the listener, you can't see it, but I'm just nodding along because. You start to pull on these threads and you look at it and you can keep going higher and higher up to, I think you have your article here, the age of value stream management, and you described it as reaching the summit of data-driven continuous improvement. And that like, if you can you know, ladder up to all these things where you have the data, you have the feedback, and you have the systems thinking, the you know, plan, check, act, do, you know, all this type of stuff, you can say, hey, how can I actually improve things in my organization, not necessarily just like for myself and my team or whatever, but, you know, given a high enough plane in the, in the organization, you can say, how can I improve the whole thing and not just one small part of it? But now we're like right back to the beginning of, you know, where do you define your value streams and how do you think about that? But you know, getting people at that level of thought, I think, is the, is the challenge, but at least the one of the goals here, you know? Yeah. Exactly. And, and then a lot of times what we'll coach teams is to follow the dependencies, right? So start somewhere. Okay. You, you know, we talk about VSM being kind of a compass on your journey. People say, well, I'm not ready yet. Well, 
Well, I think you always need a compass, right? You're doing something. You want to get better. You ha- you, sh- you need to have a North Star, right? North Stars, it's on around doing something. Yes, you can. All, there's a lot of great things to do. There's old DevOps handbook. There's safe. There's great things you can do. But your North Star is, is accelerating the delivery and protection of business value. Well, you have to measure that. You have to understand where to invest. And then you have to you know, take what you're learning from that and, and apply it across your organization. And um, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll tell people, just start small and then follow the dependencies. Go where the data takes you. Don't think you have to design this across your whole organization. You don't. You are going to learn so much just from doing this a few times. Then you know you can figure out how to adjust and adapt, and that can be very uncomfortable for leaders because they think they should already have the answer. Well, you can't have the answer until you actually run the experiments and get information, and then leadership can do that systems thinking to see, okay, how can I actually transform my organization based on this. I really like that you brought up at the, here at the end about knowing the answers. I just finished uh, reading uh, The High Velocity Edge by Steven Spear, and he mentions that answers aren't known, they're discovered, right? You don't have, you're, you're not supposed to know them. It's the whole reason why you're doing this whole thing is you're trying to figure out the proper answers to these questions by doing experiments and, and learning and, you know, figuring out you have to actually discover, you know, the best solution for your team or your business, your org, however you want to call that. So... Well, Carmen, it was uh, my pleasure to speak to you and uh, talk up to the summit of uh, continuous improvement. Is there anything you would like to leave the listeners with before we go? Sure. Um, well, of course, you know, I'm, I would love to talk more with people. If you want to visit tasktop.com, uh, you can see what kind of value management services we provide. And, you know, mixed book, project to product is, is obviously a great read. I also have a book with Jack Moore called uh, Standing on Shoulders, A Leader's Guide to Digital Transformation, which has a lot of these concepts in. Jack talks a lot about value stream mapping. We also talk about some of these concepts of value stream management in that book, so and how to get started. So, uh, Adam, it's been great, and uh, thank you again. I look forward to maybe having conversations with some of the listeners uh, about how, you know, we could go on this journey together because I, I do think, you know, I wasn't just kidding. I really do think this is quote the age of VSM where companies mm-hmm. are going to invest more in this capability to, uh, to improve their business results. So. Well, Carmen, thank you so much for coming on the show and to the listener, the links to his book and the full framework and everything will be listed uh, on the show notes page at smallbatches.fm. And uh, also, since you listen to podcasts, there's also a podcast edition of his book, so you can get it in audio form and uh, text form. Well, thank you again, Carmen, for coming on the show, and hope to talk to you again. Thanks, Adam. You've just finished another episode of Small Batches, a podcast on building a high-performance software delivery organization. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, go to smallbatches.fm. I hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping. Like the sound of small batches? This episode was produced by Podsworth Media. That's podsworth.com.